Well, we're going to wrap up the book of Daniel tonight. We've been in it 10 weeks, and tonight is kind of a summary message. And, you know, I, I found it was very difficult to do kind of a wrap-up sermon on the book of Daniel. And I was talking to Chad uh, earlier this week, and he said that when he was doing a wrap-up of Ephesians, that that was difficult, trying to condense down into one sermon a lot of the themes and things that have been discussed in the weeks before. And, you know, when you're, when I'm doing a wrap up, I don't want to introduce anything really new, but I also don't want to just cut and paste from the old sermons and, and patch that together. And plus, we've covered a lot in these 10 weeks. Uh, we've discussed kings and kingdoms, offerings, visions, beasts, horns, angels, time, times, and half a time, and even the pre-incarnate Christ. So how do you pare that down into, into just one message? So I decided that I would just pick five things that I think are really awesome about Daniel's life and then point to how that informs and shapes us as a church and in our own individual lives. And so I think it's appropriate that the title for this wrap-up sermon is called Dan the Man. So let's pray and then we'll get into the Word. Father, we thank you that we are gathered tonight to worship, to pray, to hear your word preached. And just as we, we eat many meals in our lives uh, and only remember a few, as we've been feasting on your word in Daniel for these 10 weeks, uh, we know that it all nourishes us, but we pray that there would be a couple of things that we could take with us and remember. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So five things that I think are awesome about Daniel's life. Number one, Daniel never falters. He never falters. There are several men that Scripture holds up as examples of great faith, but who also had some warts. Now, Abraham has a child by Hagar, which was not what God intended. Moses strikes the rock instead of speaking to it. David sins with Bathsheba, and he takes the census. Peter and, his, and the disciples experienced many failures throughout Jesus' ministry, and they abandoned him in his hour of need. But Daniel has no warts. He's exiled to Babylon, and everything that we read after that only underscores his faithfulness, his courage, and his wisdom. If you'll remember, Daniel chapter 1, 20 and 21 says, And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. And now that we've gone through the whole book, we know that from Nebuchadnezzar to King Cyrus is a very, very long time. It's from the time when he was probably about 18 years old up until he's probably about 90. And even though Daniel didn't contribute to the sins that led Israel into exile, he still identifies himself with his people. He identifies with their sin and their suffering, and he pleads for God to intervene on their behalf. So I think what this tells us, too, is that we, too, are to be holy as individuals and yet not stand apart from our communities, our state, our nation, or our church. So that's number one. Daniel never falters. Numbers two, three, and four all kind of go together. Each one flows out of the one before it. So number two is that Daniel draws a line between the church and the world. He draws a line between church and world. There's a lot of ways in which Daniel had to breathe 
the cultural air that he was in. He lived in a new place. He was educated in Babylonian studies. And there was pagan worship that was all around him. He had to breathe that air constantly. But Daniel drew a line at the food that he was served. And he asked for seeds and water instead of food and drink from the king's table. He drew a line, and this line was meaningful to him. It was meaningful to Daniel and to those with him. And the line said, I will be in Babylon, but I will not be of Babylon. I'll be in Babylon, but I will not be of Babylon. Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We live in the world. We live in the culture that surrounds us. And not just our immediate American culture, what we think of when we hear the word culture, but just the ongoing effects of the fall. We live in that all the time. And the world draws lines, draws lines for us. The world loudly proclaims what is normal, what is owed to you, and who you ought to be. And the world's characterization of success is typically somebody who's young, attractive, rich, powerful, and utterly free of attachments. Andy Crouch wrote a beautiful book recently, just came out this year. It's called The Life We're Looking For. And in it, he says, the more time we spend in the world that money makes, the more we become conformed to its image. But the church draws lines too. And I'm not talking about commandments specifically, but I'm talking about intentional decisions that we make toward fidelity, toward servanthood, toward virtue, humility, and putting ourselves on the hook for others. We draw those lines as well. We have to make meaningful choices that defy the lines that the world draws for us. 1 John 2, 15 to 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. For as long as Daniel kept to a diet of seeds and water, I think he preserved a strong sense of being intact within himself, of being whole, of having integrity. And that's because the most meaningful lines that we draw between church and the world, those are the ones that we draw, not the ones that the world draws for us. The most meaningful lines are the ones that we draw. Amen? Number three, Daniel speaks truth to power. And this flows out of drawing lines. Daniel speaks truth to power. In chapter 2, Daniel has the very unenviable job of telling King Nebuchadnezzar that while he is the head of gold for now, one day his kingdom will end. And in chapter 4, Daniel interprets another troubling dream of Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel tells him, you will be driven from among men, and your dwelling will be with the beasts of the field. You will be made to eat grass like an ox, and you will be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And Daniel tells this powerful king 
Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. That's speaking truth to power when you're telling probably the most powerful man alive at the time to break off his sins. And Daniel does the same thing with King Belshazzar in chapter 5, telling him that he's been weighed in God's balances and found wanting and that his time's up and his reign is about to end. And finally, Daniel speaks truth to power through his prayers and through his silence. When the wise guys trick King Darius into making the law that nobody can pray except to King Darius, Daniel goes to his house and he prays. He doesn't protest. He doesn't try to rally support. He doesn't try to convince the king to help him. He prays and is otherwise silent until he's delivered. Daniel's only speech in the whole story doesn't come until verse 21, and that's when he declares that God's angels had protected him. The church also speaks to power. We're also called to speak to power. No matter how out of touch the world thinks our views are, we are still compelled to speak truth. Two statements I kept seeing after Roe v. Wade was overturned was that, one, it was a step backward, and two, it was an assault on women's rights. And when public figures reigning from the President of the United States to Bill Gates to Prince Harry to musicians and actors are all saying the same thing, the same rhetoric, it becomes the dominant line of thought in our culture. And they can't resist punching down on anybody who says otherwise, who dares to say otherwise. But the church speaks to power. And the church insists, even if nobody listens, that it's not a step backward and it's not an assault on women's rights, but it's one that honors life and it keeps the sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. Amen? And the church speaks truth to power about marriage and about how God designed marriage. And the church speaks truth to power about numerous other things. Because if the church doesn't speak the truth, then nobody will. And everybody will do what is right in their own eyes. One writer I like says this, Sticking up for truth when it is unpopular is far more of a virtue because it costs you something, your reputation. Some people only express their opinions as part of mob shaming when it is safe to do so. And in the bargain, they think they are displaying virtue. This is not virtue, but vice, a mixture of bullying and cowardice. Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar to break off his sins, but he did so out of genuine concern for the king's welfare. Remember, Daniel was distressed when he had to say this to the king. That's how we speak truth to power, out of genuine concern for our world. Not out of hate or condemnation, but out of love. Does that make sense? All right. Number four, Daniel makes a better offer. So Daniel draws lines between church and world. Daniel speaks truth to power. And Daniel makes a better offer. Like Daniel and his friends, we are seeds of the kingdom. In chapter 1, something begins to grow in Babylon. Miraculously, seeds and water lead to fatness of flesh. And the Hebrew exiles are advising the king, this is God at work. Daniel asked the chief eunuch, 
to allow him to not estrange himself from his God by eating from the king's table. But Ashpenaz was afraid and so declined. And so Daniel tried again with the chief steward and he made a better offer. And he said, test us for 10 days. There's no risk to you. Test us for 10 days and let's see how it goes. He made a better offer and he entrusted the results to God. And as the church, we do the same thing. We have a prophetic voice. We speak truth to power, but we're also called to be constructive. We don't just say what's bad and what's wrong. We're also called to promote what's good and true and beautiful. We're seeded out in our jobs, our neighborhoods, our schools, and seeds are small and fragile, but we're not ordinary seeds. We're the seed of the woman who will defeat the seed of the serpent. Amen? Paul says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so we need to remember that we have real power. We have real power. It's just not going to look like the power structures in the world. The prevailing cultural trends, they're not for us. But even as we speak truth to power, we need to make a better offer. And just a, just a small testimony along these lines. In the past 16, 17 years, I've come to see this church, this particular Trinity Christian Fellowship, as a better offer. It's been a better offer to the hypermobility that's become the norm these days, of constant transience and moving. That if you're part of a church, but you get promoted, or you get transferred, or you get a free ride to college, you just automatically move. You automatically chase the opportunity. And you just join a church wherever you go. And then once a new opportunity opens up there, you just move to the next thing. I grew up in the, in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And the, there are Missouri Synod churches all over the United States. And they're all preaching from the same text every week. And a lot of the liturgy is the same. And so, in a very real sense, if you moved to another city, you just looked for the Missouri Synod Church, the Lutheran Church, and it was by and large the same. And this, I'm not denigrating that system at all, but it's a lot like if you go to one McDonald's, pretty much go to every McDonald's because all the food comes from the same place and they're not very different. When we were first getting to know people, I remember folks telling us about people in the church who had turned down promotions who had turned down other opportunities because to take them would have forced them to move, to relocate, to be somewhere away from this church. And they saw themselves as belonging to a particular people, and so they didn't want to take that. And I had never heard of that before. I had never heard of any such thing. I had heard of people being devoted to their hometown. I had heard of people being devoted to their employer or to their vocation. But I had not come across people who considered that their first and primary place of belonging was their church. And though it didn't happen right away, it took probably about three years for me to see it, and Dawn probably saw it earlier than I did, I began to see that it was a better offer. And we don't expect everybody who spends time with us to become lifers. I want to make that clear. If you've been coming around for some time, we do not expect you're going to be a lifer. But we do hold it out with open hands as a powerful vision of a better offer. And finally, number five, Daniel lived a meaningful life 
in circumstances that he didn't choose. Daniel lived a meaningful life in circumstances that he didn't choose. Daniel did not have many aspects of what we would consider to be a normal life. He lived the majority of his life in exile from his home. It doesn't seem that he ever married or had children. We're not told that he did. He didn't get to choose his education or his line of work. That was chosen for him. And he seemed to have more enemies than he had friends. And yet Daniel's life was thoroughly meaningful because he lived his exiled life with God. He lived every aspect of his life with God. From the time he trusted God to make them fat on seeds and water until he was an old man praying in front of his enemies and having visions, Daniel walked with God. And three times in the book, Daniel is told that he is greatly loved. One of my favorite verses is Ecclesiastes 3.11. And I, I like it particularly in the New Living Translation, which says, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. We can't see around corners. But God can. We can't stand outside of time and judge the meaningfulness of our lives. Only God can do that. And although I'm not an old man by any means, I suspect that this concern about the meaningfulness of our lives is something that we feel greater pressure about as we age, as we get older. And that's why I believe this quote from Dallas Willard addresses this concern in a powerful way. I think I've read it before. This would probably rank in my top 10 favorite quotes. Willard says, I meet many faithful Christians who, in spite of their faith, are deeply disappointed in how their lives have turned out. Sometimes it is simply a matter of how they experience aging, which they take to mean they no longer have a future. But often, due to circumstances or wrong decisions and actions by others, what they had hoped to accomplish in life, they did not. They painfully puzzle over what they may have done wrong or over whether God has ever really been with them. Much of the distress of these good people comes from a failure to realize that their life lies before them, that they are coming to the end of their present life is of little significance. What is of significance is the kind of person they have become. Circumstances and other people are not in control of an individual's character or of the life that lies endlessly before us in the kingdom of God. That last sentence is so powerful, I want to read it again. Circumstances and other people are not in control of an individual's character or of the life that lies endlessly before us in the kingdom of God. We don't have the perspective needed to judge the meaningfulness of our lives. We're simply called to go and walk in faithfulness. Remember, the very last line in the book of Daniel is this, but go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. So may Daniel's life continue to challenge us as a church living in Babylon, drawing well-chosen lines, speaking truth to power, making a better offer to the world, and standing at the end of the days. Amen.